From the campus of Harvard Medical School, this is Think Research, a podcast devoted to the stories behind clinical research. I'm Abby. And I'm Brendan, and we're your hosts. Think Research is brought to you by Harvard Catalyst, Harvard University's Clinical and Translational Science Center. And by NCATS, the National Center for Advancing Translational Sciences. Tissue preservation is critical for recovering from a traumatic injury. When a traumatic injury occurs and a body part needs to be reattached, the standard of care is to transport the body part in a mixture of water and ice to prevent the tissue from dying. While this works in many cases, water and ice are not always available. Ice water also cools tissue to five times below the optimal temperature for tissue preservation. Dr. Giorgio Jetsidis hopes to develop a portable device that can provide the ideal cooling temperature without ice. Dr. Jetsidis is an instructor of surgery at Brigham and Women's Hospital. Welcome to the show, Dr. Jetsidis. Thank you very much for having me. You work on tissue preservation and regeneration after traumatic injuries. What are some ways that we preserve tissues? Uh, that's actually a, a very good question, and uh, surprisingly, there are not many ways we do that. Uh, when you when we think of a way to preserve tissues, uh, the first example that usually comes to mind is our organ, organ transplantation. And we always have this picture in our mind probably of someone with an ice bucket uh, going around on a, a helicopter or an airplane. And more or less that's standard of care today for organ transplantation. Uh, organs are infused with particular solutions that help uh, preserve tissues and then put in a uh, refrigerated bucket, uh, usually with a mixture of water and ice, and transplant, uh, transported to the uh, uh, to the hospital for the for, for the surgery. Um, Beyond that, uh, in my case, in reconstructive uh, surgery, uh, the same applies to uh, amputated body parts, fingers, hands, uh, arms. Uh, when you know a trauma injury occurs and you need to replant, reattach the the part, uh, usually uh, transported in a mixture of water and ice. Um, surprisingly, other than that, uh, not much is available. Uh, Clinically, there's a lot of research, uh, research on perfusing, uh, perfusion devices. Um, these are a little more complicated, but um, still not the most um, uh, uh, broadly available technology. Why are ice and cold temperatures beneficial to tissue preservation? Yes, yeah, so this, um, you, you have to think that when a tissue is injured, um, in particular, if, if this tissue lacks uh, blood supply, for example, an organ or an amputated body part, you know, the blood supply uh, is um, uh, cut. So there is no uh, metabolites, there is no nutrients, there's no oxygen that gets to the tissues. So the tissues need to survive based on their own resources, the resources they have stored. And these are very limited, and they usually um, last for a very short time. 
In addition to that, um, these cells are um, subjected usually to an injury, uh, either from surgery or from the trauma. And so um, uh, these cells and this tissue are reacting with a series of um, uh, activities that burn even more nutrients and faster. Um, all of this is called technically warm ischemia. Warm means room temperature. Ischemia means that there is no oxygen. And tissues under warm ischemia have a very uh, limited resistance to, um, to, to, to this condition before they start to die. Basically, when they have finished nutrients, the cells are no more able to um, carry on normal activities. And so... Uh, go undergoes a process called apoptosis, so basically uh, dies, um, and tissue and tissue also die. Um, one way to slow down the metabolism, the activity of the cells, is to freeze them. So to use a cold to kind of hibernate the cells. And we have tons of examples of this in nature, and probably I, I'm not super familiar with the history of where this comes from, but I, I guess it's, it's always learning from nature. Um, a lot of, uh, during winter, a lot of organisms from bacteria to larger mammals, they, um, they undergo, uh, they hibernate to, to survive extreme conditions. And when they hibernate, they slow down their functions. And so they're able to use their storage of nutrients and energy for a longer time. And the same happens when we uh, cool down a tissue. So basically the principle is to slow down the cells, slow down the, the activity of the tissue so that their um, storage of nutrients lasts longer. And so when we have a warm ischemia, we can assume our resistance to this condition for X hours, when we put the same tissue under a cold ischemia, um, that resistance becomes a little longer. So when you mentioned, you know, you're in a, an accident, and let's say you use an arm, I was just curious, you can actually reattach a full arm? And how long do you have after the traumatic event, um, given some of the things you were talking about, and an arm seems like a significant um appendage to lose and then to be reattached yeah absolutely actually um my my work in this area started um from a similar case it was not an arm it was a leg i was a medical student i still remember many years ago not that many though <laughs> <laughs> and um uh, one one patient uh, fell from um from the balcony and basically lost a leg and I remember you know um, I was a student and the patient came in in the OR with the uh, leg amputated above the knee and uh, there was this bucket of bucket on the on the on a corner of the OR with the leg in and the leg was in water and ice and that has attached me a and we reattached it we, we were successful uh, but I always that that case and many others that uh, during my training I've I've uh, faced um, always made me think of the fact that it's, you know 2019 at that time was a little bit earlier 2010 2008 um, but still we use um, water and ice to preserve a standard of care uh, legs but uh, yes legs and arms <laughs> can always be well always is a big word but can be replanted depending on the type of injury one of the key 
limit in replantation, tissue replantation, fingers, arms, um, um, legs, feet, everything, is time. Uh, mm -hmm. And that goes back to the problem of warm ischemia and cold ischemia. So when tissue starts to die too much, it's dangerous to re reattach them because uh, you have to think that, uh, first of all, it may when you re replant uh, uh, an arm, for example, you want to replant an arm that works. Because if the arm is not going to work, so if the muscles are dead and they're not going to work, that arm is actually a problem to the patient because it's just something that is scaring the way. Better have a prosthesis at that point. Um, I know that this is counterintuitive, but uh, and, you know it is always difficult to explain to patients. But the same is also with finger. If you you have to try to think of you know if you have a finger in your uh, hand that doesn't. You don't need all five fingers to function. Your hand can work with four fingers, three fingers. Um, but if you have a finger that doesn't bend, that's a problem because everything you're trying to do, the finger is in its way. So sometimes uh, instead of replanting, even if we can, uh, uh, if the finger is not going to work or the arm is not going to work, it's better not to. Um, the, other, the other part of things is that in particular for larger tissues like an arm, um, if a lot of tissue has undergone apoptosis, is dead. When you replant it, uh, there are a lot of uh, molecules, cytokines, uh, mm, uh, dead tissue that can move uh, all over the body, can go from that, you know, death muscle and go to the kidneys, go to the lungs, and can create uh, big problems. This, is, this uh, problem is called ischemia reperfusion injury, means that when you have ischemia for a prolonged time and then you have reperfusion, so re you reestablish blood supply, um, you have the risk that all these molecules go uh, systemically to the body and can cause, uh, uh, can even lead to death uh, because they mm -hmm. can uh, cause uh, um, um, severe damage to the kidneys, lungs, brain. So um, usually when you, going back, uh, um, going back to your question, uh, there is no real window of you know how many hours, but for major replantations, it's usually considered under three, four hours uh, under warm ischemia, and this can go up to six, seven hours, even if there are um, uh, anecdotes of you know longer, longer time periods. Um, but usually, you can at least double the time um, that it's considered safe. You will still have some degree of loss uh, of death tissue, so loss of function, but uh, you have a longer time uh, window. And if mm -hmm. you think that this is critical, maybe uh, most of the times, uh, not in uh, metropolitan context, like for example, in Boston, New York, but uh, or big cities, but in rural medicine where transportation is longer mm -hmm. to get to the hospital. Um, one of the examples I always make is that time the clock starts ticking now when from from the time of injury but doesn't stop when you get to the hospital because you know the fact that you're in the hospital doesn't change anything to the blood supply going to the tissue the the clock stops when the surgeon has finished repairing the blood vessels and blood supply is flowing back again to the tissue so it's not just you know from the point of injury to the hospital it's from the point of injury to the end of the surgery what are the drawbacks of these methods? Well, uh, there are a couple of drawbacks. A few are in 
intuitive, more intuitive, other a little bit less. And the intuitive ones is that, um, well, you, you do need a big bucket, you do need an ice, <laughs> and it's not always, um, uh, it's not always available. Of course, we are talking about organ transplantation, you can have ice everywhere, but if we are talking about trauma care, uh, uh, in a rural context, for example, you, you may not have ice, uh, and so this, uh, and also it's, there is a lot of weight in water and ice, depending on how big is the tissue, but um, it, it, it can, can be significant. And ice and water don't last that long, so you may need to change it. Um, and these are a little bit more intuitive. Um, a little bit less intuitive is the fact that w we use water and ice uh, because it's the simplest way uh, we can do this today. But actually research has shown that when um, you cool down a tissue to the temperature of a mixture of water and ice, uh, which, and I apologize for using Celsius, is zero to four Celsius degrees, um, um, uh, that's actually not the best temperature at which you can cool down tissues. Uh, the best temperature is something in between 10, 15, 20. So we're talking about five times higher. Uh, uh, just as a reference for those of you that um, um, are not familiar with Celsius, uh, uh, body temperature is 36. So the ideal would be something between uh, around 15, temperature of ice is zero. So you can see how uh, we're cooling down tissues probably too much. Uh, and probably we're harming them somehow because we're cooling them, them too much. What happens is that um, next slide, this actually opens like a interesting you know, window, uh, opportunity for discussion for those who are interested in nature in general. But um, what happens is that we know that our body is 60% water. There's tons of water inside the cells. You have to think that all type of water when you to take it uh, below freezing point becomes ice. So also the water inside the cells becomes ice. And when you know when what happens when you put like a bottle of water in the freezer and ice expands because there's a bigger volume. And so to the cells, what happens that the cells expand and they actually uh, uh, explode, right? So all those animals, bacteria, um, that are able to survive at um, uh, sub-freezing temperature in nature, they have developed particular mechanism in which they mix their water with um, uh, glucose or other carbohydrates to make it like um, um, like those liquids that you use in your car to avoid freezing, you know, antifreeze basically. They, so they have all these mechanisms. We don't have them as humans. So every time our cells go below zero, um, they, they, they have this risk. So the trick is to have a mixture of water and ice, as I told you before, because when it's a mixture, it's not ice temperature. It's you know, a little bit above, but still it's too cold. Um, why we don't keep them at you know, 15, 20 degrees, so the ideal cold temperature? Simply because, uh, I know it sounds um, uh, obvious, but it's because we don't have yet technologies to do that. And so that's something that we're trying to work on. Mm. What first made you pursue research in this area? Yes, I, this goes back to, to what I mentioned earlier. And uh, I actually started from my uh, very own uh, clinical experience. Um, 
first uh, when I was a student, I got a, a few cases that uh, really touched me. And then during my um, residency and uh, career, early career in plastic surgery, reconstructive surgery, dealing with um, a lot of uh, replantations. So um, upper limb, sometimes lower limb replantation and seeing that again, 2000. 10, 2015, 2019, but still standard of care is probably um, is a, a mixture of water ice, which is um, uh, something that I thought could be improved uh, given all the technologies and all the um, possibilities that we have today. And so I, I, I thought of that and said, well, let's see if we can uh, try to do something better. Um, you work with the DOD on a few different projects. Could you talk to us about your collaboration or your work with SBIR? Yeah, so um, uh, if you think, we going back to what we were saying earlier, uh, the pitch is, is not always, you don't always have eyes and it waits a lot. If you think that, if you think of a battlefield injury in, I don't know, the middle of... Um, Iraq, Afghanistan, um, a medic doesn't carry ice with, with them. And uh, uh, it's a lot of weight. So um, the, uh, military personnel is number one, um, patients with blast injuries, amputations of their lower or upper limb. So uh, they do have a, a strong interest, as I, I do, in finding solution to uh, help uh, preserve these tissues before they are replanted, and this this is not surprising because um, actually research and medical innovation in the field of reconstructive surgery has, al has always been um, uh, has always had a very close relationship with the uh, with the military. Um, it's, it's often said that uh, modern plastic surgery was born or reborn during the First World War. And that's because uh, a lot of, uh, unfortunately, a lot of uh, soldiers face uh, devastating injuries on the battlefield and need reconstructive surgeries. And, um, the, and, and so this has uh, kind of pushed uh, the, uh, my field, plastic surgery, to develop better and better uh, solutions. Uh, uh, eventually, these solutions that uh, at that time, but also today, are developed uh, collaborating with the uh, Department of Defense are brought to the civilians because these problems also affect the civilians, maybe not in the same severity, uh, probably even larger uh, scale. When we consider the, uh, when we list the conditions that usually uh, uh, our uh, cause of death in the States, for example, in the United States, but also worldwide. Uh, we list a number of diseases from cardiovascular disease to cancer, but we always forget that number one cause of death is trauma, uh, motor vehicle accidents, other type of traumas, work-related injuries. And uh, this is a little bit, uh, of course, in the uh, within the military field, this is uh, a very clear priority, but sometimes... Uh, in the civilian sector uh, is a little bit neglected. How do you see this research translating into technologies to be implemented in the future? As we said, uh, 
trauma care uh, occurs uh, you know on, on the battlefield but can occur anywhere it's very difficult in particular in a rural context uh, or in uh, mass casualties uh, that unfortunately uh, too often occur um, w- what we are trying to work on now and going back to your question on the SBR SBR is a particular um, um, program from in this case from the DOD, but the NIH also has this kind of program that um, aims to pa- uh, create partnership between academia and the small businesses to develop new products that um, will make it hopefully in a short time to the market. Um, our What we're working on is to try to develop a device that can provide the ideal cooling, so to amputated uh, body parts, uh, lower limbs, upper limbs, um, and without the need of eyes. That's what we are trying to, a portable device, that's what we are trying to to work on. Um, and applications are, of course, in trauma care, but are um, there could be even wider, because if, if you think of the concept of cooling tissues to decrease their, um, uh, the, their damage uh, after an injury, um, this doesn't it doesn't apply only to very critical uh, cases like amputations, but applies to any type of tissue injury. And so if you look at the broader picture of uh, tissue cooling, uh, I think you may have not thought of it until now, but uh, what I'm going to ask you is what, what you do when you when you have a contusion, you put an ice pack on. And that's exactly the same, you know, in a smaller case, you put the ice pack uh, because that's the or ice, you know, if you have a, in your fridge. Um, and that's because you're uh, slowing down inflammation, slowing down injury. And uh, we want to optimize that field as well. Same applies to uh, surgeries and many other areas. You're working on a couple different projects to improve tissue preservation. Can you talk about some of what you're working on? As I, I told you, uh, I've been thinking of this problem and of possible solutions for a long time since I was a student. Um, but to be honest, the first time, the first opportunity I had to actually start working on it a little bit more uh, was when I um, interacted with the Stepping Strong Foundation. This is a foundation that um, is based here in Boston at Brigham Women's Hospital, where I work and was started by the family of um, Gillian Rennie. Gillian uh, was a, a survivor of the Boston Marathon bombings, and she was taken care of um, here at Brigham and Women's by um, Michael Leakes, plastics or orthopedic surgeons, and they were able to save their leg. Um, the family was so grateful that they started this uh, initiative to uh, fundraise in support of trauma research, uh, which they recognize being an area that um, needs more support. And they've been doing an an amazing um, uh, work over the last, I think this year marks the five-year anniversary. So um, they've done an amazing work, not just in fundraising, uh, supporting uh, investigators uh, like myself and others uh, locally, locally, internationally, um, but also raising awareness on uh, the need for to support trauma care. And I was fortunate enough to receive one of their Innovator Awards uh, in 2018, and that allowed me to get some of this work started. And um, um, we 
put the basis of the concept of developing a cooling device. And this um, was uh, what also uh, provided us enough preliminary uh, data and work to uh, start a collaboration later on with the DOD. Um, so with the Stamp and Strong Foundation, we're a little bit looking more at the civilian sector, and then the work is continuing also with the Department of Defense on the other line. Can you talk a little bit more about the device and how it works? Yes. Um, basically, the concept of the device, there are two parts. One part is uh, the cooling device itself, and uh, the, the, the issue that we have tried to uh, tackle when uh, working on that part was how can we create cooling and there are different ways there are, you can create cooling I, I became an expert <laughs> over the last few years <laughs> but you can create cooling through a chemical reaction and that's uh, the concept of the ice packs uh, you can create cooling through electricity and uh, um, those are not really uh, there are not many examples in the consumer market, uh, but uh, that's another option. Or you can um, you create cooling uh, through um, um, the expansion of gases, and that's uh, how your fridge actually works, uh, if you were not aware of it. Um, so we're working on that, and we're trying to figure out what's the um, li most the lightest and the uh, lightest way to cool down uh, something uh, without using too much energy and that's uh, one part the second part is that uh, we think it's critical is insulation uh, basically uh, you know when if you have a tissue that you, and you wrap it in some kind of fabrics that can keep uh, a specific temperature that's make things easier because um, you have to imagine let's let's make the example of an arm um, you can try to keep cooling down an arm, you know, for several hours, or you can try to cool it down and then place it inside uh, a bag that's thermally insulated so that the temperature at which the arm is stays where it is because there's no more eating coming from outside. So that's the second part. So we have a first part, which is let's take the, this tissue to our target temperature. And then there is the second part, let's keep that target temperature without the need of providing cooling uh, over time. Because when you cool down something, then the problem is that the environment all around is, is hot, is warmer. And so tries to get the tissue to the so-called room temperature. So once we have cooled it down, we want to keep it there. And so we're working on that side. Thank you for joining us, Dr. Jetsides. It's been a pleasure to have this conversation with you. My pleasure. Thank you very much for inviting me once again. Next time on Think Research. So you have to strike a balance, and that's a very careful judgment call. In our case, we thought that we first needed to really convince ourselves this drug would work in the large stroke population. And if it did, then we could go back after FDA approval and then start exploring other heterogeneous or variations in stroke or even frankly other acute brain injuries to see if the drug would work in those settings too. Dr. Taylor Kimberly talks about the phase three clinical trial he and his collaborators are conducting to improve stroke treatment. Thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed this podcast, 
Please rate us on iTunes and help us spread the word about the amazing research taking place across the Harvard community. To learn more about the guests on this episode, visit our website, catalyst.harvard.edu slash thinkresearch. Thank you.